Requiem Metal Podcast, episode 131, brought to you by executive producer Oli Makinen. Thank you very much for your support.
heard rotten to the core and that certainly was overkill from their feel the fire record 1985 this is a record metal podcast i'm mark and i'm jason and this is a once again another long overdue uh rediscovery band for for mark and i here with i think uh, uh, bobby blitz would say you're shitting me you're shitting me <laughs> He has a great line in the title track, Feel the Fire. I think he's like, Feel the fucking fire or something like that. That's pretty pretty awesome. Well, I think he, Bobby Blitz falls in the same camp, for me at least, uh, as King Diamond and, uh, you know, Messiah from Candlemass. A lot of the bands that are less penetrable, you know, you can't really penetrate the vocals when you're younger. Yeah. Either you get it or you don't. Yeah. And uh, Overkill is a band in the last couple of years I've started to kind of appreciate even more, especially the, just, they don't sound like anybody else. No, they had the their own unique approach to sort of the new york you know kind of hardcore punk influence thrash stuff that like anthrax and nuclear assault and some of those bands kind of you know well like where bass famous where bass yeah. was you know it was like a punk bass kind of aesthetic i mean these guys and and uh well i think in 1980 uh brad skates and dd what the hell's dd verney Didi Verney, yeah, were in the Lubricants. Neither of which are their their real names. Yeah, so. was in the Lubricants, which was a basically a, a punk band when they were kids. Yeah, and so I mean, there's definitely that punk kind of background that you know you can you can hear it a little bit in, in Anthrax, but it's more of a New York hardcore kind of vibe. But, but this is just kind of a straight up, you know, more of a seventies. Well, sure, there's kind of definitely vibe. you know, uh, and Didi Verney and Rat Skates, the the two founding guys, we should say, you know, Didi Verney uh, kind of named himself Didi Verney in honor of Didi Ramone. You know, and Rat Skates took his name from uh, Rat from uh, the Dam. You know, so that's kind of odd right away to have a thrash metal band that's owing so much allegiance straight up to punk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly Slayer did years later with. Uh, I think everybody did disputed attitudes, but it stuff, wasn't but quite as uh, wasn't as, as deep. Overt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, all those thrash bands were influenced by a lot of people, but I think you mentioned too the, the '70s vibe or the late '70s, early '80s, the the whole new wave of British heavy metal thing that's that's really meeting, um, especially in the first two releases. You know, Feel mm-hmm. the Fire and Taking Over, you can hear a lot of that stuff there, and and yet you know you hear this this punk influence too. You know, the way that Rat approaches sort of the drumming. Well, stuff he, on yeah, the first he's like records. just doing the hi hats open constantly. I mean, he's he's got that kind of the fury of a of a punk drummer for yeah. sure. And, and just the fact that a lot of thrash bands, um, you know, for as influenced as the thrash bands were by the whole new wave of British heavy metal thing, one thing they didn't take that, like, you know, say Steve Harris did or some, I can't think of any other basis from <laughs> new wave of British heavy metal bands. Was, Ian Hill? What's that? Yeah. Ian Hill. <laughs> Ian Hill. Although you could argue Judas Priest spurred the new wave of British heavy metal, but they were, they, they kind of predated it really. Yeah, I think so. Um, but you know that that stuff that was sort of emerging, that sort of faster, energetic, youthful thing that was happening in England, was um, Motorhead. Motorhead, yeah, Lemmy. Yeah, there you know, go. There's a bass it was player. very bass driven in mm-hmm. a way. You know, as was punk in a sense. You know, the the bass was very prominent in a lot was, of that I think stuff. The bass was almost the propulsion more so than the, like the drums was there just to kind of get the the thing going. But it was the, the bass yeah. was the thing that kept everything kind of like undulating forward. Yeah. 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 And Motorhead, I mean, that's the first... I mean, how many... Like, almost the bass... You know, starting a song with some kind of, like, bass riff is almost like a punk cliche mm-hmm. to some degree. But you pull that into thrash, and all of a sudden it sounds like the, it's this whole, like, new kind of, like, energy. Yeah, and Cliff Burton and some of those guys dabbled around in that, you mm-hmm. know, with some of the instrumental stuff they would do. But, um, you know, bass was always... Uh, 
never present in a lot of thrash. I mean, there was a. I think Frank Bellow and Anthrax. There's a you know sure. there's a couple, but the, really bass. I think kind of took the the back seat in most thrash music. Yeah, and that's and that's odd, you know. And that was a choice. I mean, you know, you can barely hear Tom Maria's bass and and many of the. I mean, you know, but you it's take there. it out and it's you yeah, know, sure. It's, you know, it adds all, what it was doing is helping accentuate the I guess the double bass drums that became like so prominent in thrash too. You mm-hmm. know, they almost like merged together to form like one sound. But nobody was like snapping out like a Steve Harris where it was driving. Yeah, you know the the songs in that sort of way as a lead instrument, but Dee Dee Verney kind of maybe not so much on the first couple records, but by the time like Under the Influence and um, Years of Decay come about, he starts really. I know, think he's becoming prominent. Yeah, I think he's more important than the guitar player, really. Yeah. As far as like what I'm hearing and the impact and how he how he moves a song forward. Yeah. Like he, it's not following just the beat of the drums constantly. He's like. You know, and especially since they're only, you know, they've only got a guitar player, drummer, bass player, vocalist. They don't have the twin kind of attack thing. He totally kind of picks up the the slack, and similarly, like you know, how Steve Harris basically fills every little fill, yeah, or every like open spot, and kind of he's playing his own line uh, along with the drums, but it's not the exactly same, you know, sure. kind of beat. Yeah, that makes sense, and. uh you know, so that that right away that added something I guess unique to to them is that they're taking this sort of Judas Priest, new wave of British heavy metal. You know, even right down to I guess the the sort of Rob Halford styled vocals that that you hear, especially in the older stuff. Operatic. Um, yeah. There's some operatic things kind of happening there, but you also get I guess some of the Germanic uh, Teutonic stuff from like Accept, some Udo vocals for sure. And even the Paul muted super fast guitar riffs and mm-hmm. stuff too. Yeah, which Accept was proto-thrash in, in mm-hmm. their own way, you know. And then you mix that with the punk style and then you kind of get the basis of like, I guess, Overkill's sound. And, uh, you know, one thing, and we'll get into, you know, Bobby Blitz's vocals in a moment and kind of how that's, like you said, kind of a divisive element, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think Bobby Blitz's vocals and Dee Dee's bass playing were, were I think, the, the asterisk things that made Overkill kind of unique, you know, oh, in, so. as a thrash band. But these guys, you know, some of the songs on Feel the Fire, you know, were written in like 80, 81, 82. You know, when you said they moved into becoming Overkill uh, and they were playing a lot of covers and different things like that. And you mentioned Motor Motorhead. They would play like um, they would play like half of Ace of Spades live, the whole record, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. In addition to, to other New Wave British heavy metal stuff and even some punk stuff. So they were some throwing in a, a lot of too, things. Yeah. yeah, a lot of pre-stuff. Even on this, uh, they they do a Dead Boys cover of uh, Sonic Reducer, you mm-hmm. know, which showed, again, some street cred value. Many thrash bands weren't putting out a punk cover on their debut record. You know, that was yeah. kind of weird. But I think it sh- goes without saying that because they're writing these songs like 80, 81, 82, I mean, this predates almost any other thrash band. And there's a lot of, I guess, diehard Overkill fans and believers that believe that they they may have been, they may have beat Metallica and Exodus and some of these so-called first, you know, thrash bands. Well, I think to, at the to, very to least, the they're right there with everybody else. Yet they get thrown in the second tier with Testament and Exodus and those bands. And Which, I'm not saying you know, they deserve to be a first tier band, but it's just so odd that they have this. Well, like first Anvil. tier, second tier. Well, yeah, yeah March of yeah. the Crabs. And you know, stuff it's like, that. like you know, th- those kind of bands that I think that really kind of push the genre forward are always the ones that aren't. Uh, they're usually not as lucky in uh, their management and like record, you know, A and R kind of relationships to where they actually get a record out. I mean, because Exodus would have been 
I think, infinitely bigger than they were if they would have got their record out sooner. Sure. I mean, there's lots of bands, like Dismembers the same way. There's tons of stories about that, of the, you know, these two bands that started almost the same time. Maybe the other one actually started earlier, but that one band just gets the lucky break. You know, the one person sees it that really pushes them over the top. And And I don't know if maybe it was a geographical thing, you know, because they were busy cutting their teeth playing the New York, New Jersey, uh, you know, like live scene and they they, mm-hmm. they had quite a reputation as being like a great live band and yeah one of the reasons they went with their very uh evocative uh colorful logo the sort of you know dark lime green kind of color whatever variations they do on that was to to get attention on flyers you know mm-hmm. at the time and, and stand out but you know you look at what what else was going on in san francisco not much you know so metallica yeah. may have stood out because there wasn't a lot of competition there whereas you know, New Jersey, New York, I mean, there's, Jesus Christ, everything was happening, you know, all the yeah. time in yeah. those places, yeah. you know, whether it was Sonic Youth doing their, their kind of noise rock stuff in the early 80s or, you know, so the Ramones were still doing what they were doing. I mean, there were still lots of vibrant things happening in New York. Oh, yeah, totally. And so maybe it was tougher for the the Overkills and Anthraxes and things like that to sort of, like, break out, you know. I mean, obviously, Anthrax eventually did it, but it took I them. I mean, they didn't break out to what, 85 or 86? Yeah, I mean, Among the Living was 87, you know. Um, I mean, that was the big That was the, the big, big one. You know, be it Spreading the Disease in 85 and Fistful of Metal in 84 from Anthrax. So, you know, they had to work their way towards that, too. Mm-hmm. They they weren't immediate like, say, Metallica was with Kill Em All, yeah. you know, which right out the gates was was a big record for and, them. And, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot I mean, there's just so many different factors to, yeah. to figure into that. I mean, Metallica is just the... The kind of persona of the band. Sure. Right place, right time. You got guys like Lars and, you know, it is what it is, you know, plus getting on that, uh, the Metal Blade comps and stuff like that was Metal Massacre stuff, yeah. yeah, Was key. So, but, you know, John Zazula, you know, eventually discovers these guys. Well, not discovers, but but ropes them up. You know, the funny thing is, wasn't wasn't Megaforce based out of Jersey? Yeah, it was. And so he he was aware of Anthrax. And (laughs) And he even, I thought he even had a bar to where he had bands come and play there. Oh, yeah. And I would assume they played there a ton. Yeah. Well, but he started Megaforce on the back of helping get Metallica signed, correct? Because Kill 'em All technically was not on Megaforce. It was Ride the Lightning was the first Metallica release on Megaforce in '84. And a lot was that of that stuff, the first but Megaforce that was record? Uh, no, because Megaforce, I, I think at that point they were co with producing Electra. records with uh, Atlantic. Oh, with Atlantic or Electra? Isn't Electra part of Atlantic? Yeah, it might be. I couldn't. I was do the. There's so much stuff. bullshit happening, yeah. but. But yeah, I'm pretty sure they were actually going on before Metallica with all the documentaries I've seen. But it's it's hard to keep all these facts sure. straight. Yeah. Well, and actually, speaking, the, the Get Thrash documentary that Rat Skates. I was the, gonna say, speaking of the that. drummer, you know, actually filmed and edited uh, is is a pretty solid documentary. It's a little rough in parts, and they kind of miss they miss some opportunities for things. But it's uh, I mean, as far as there's not a ton of thrash documentaries. At least somebody out there. was doing it. You know, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, better exactly. Than, and it's nice know. that somebody that was in the genre at that time and knew it inside and out is is kind of handling yeah. it. So you get Feel the Fire, which is where, you know, uh, Rotten to the Core came from. Um, and it's it's a, it's a great, energetic, but but still very rooted in the new wave of British heavy metal stuff. I wouldn't even say that it's even set forth necessarily the overkill formula. Like, you get some of the operatic, high vocal styles of, of Bobby Blitz, mm-hmm. you know. We got that great Die by the Sword riff. Yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, 
you know, so they're drawing upon a lot of the the stuff that was happening. I mean, Slayer was drawing upon Priest pretty heavily. Oh, absolutely. And, stuff, so. and Punk. And Punk, yeah. So, But on the other side of the country. You know? And I'm sure they were... They knew each other. You know, I don't think Overkill was unaware of what was happening on well, the, yeah, the tape trading West Coast. circuits as it, as they were, I think, you know. So, you know, but but it's it's a strong debut really and it's one um I didn't have until recently. I picked it up on vinyl. Um but the the rest of the lineup, uh I think you already said Bobby Gustafson, Dee Dee Verney, Bobby Blitz Ellsworth, and then Rat Skates. So and Rat Skates will only be on the first two records, uh, which we'll talk about taking over in just a second, and then he'll leave. And then um, Dee Dee Verney and Ellsworth are uh, the only guys that have survived uh, still to this day from, yeah, well, from Feel the Fire. Yeah, because basically all the stuff that we're going to kind of cover up until Horoscope mm-hmm. uh, on this episode, we've got um, the first what three records, uh, Gustafson, it is on, but then uh, yeah, basically actually Blitzen. first four. First he's four. On, he's okay. on Years of Decay too. Yeah, but yeah, basically Blitz and uh, and Vernie are the only consistent members. Of and Vernie's the only original member because he and Rat Skates founded the band. Yeah, so still to this day, I guess. which I kind of think for my money, I think Vernie's the most uh, essential guy. If he was not in the band, I don't think the band would exist. Yeah, as and weird I mean, as it sounds, because he's not he's not the vocalist, he's not the major songwriter, true. but. He's, well, he writes a lot. Of, I mean, I think he's a co-writer in a lot of stuff. Yeah, but but up well, like when Gustafson left uh, for Horoscope, everybody's worried that how are they going to write a record, you yeah. know, without. But sure. but I think he's just got this certain kind. Of, I mean, it's like if Harris left, Iron Maiden, Maiden, it wouldn't exist. Anymore. Nikki Six and Motley Crue, exactly same thing. Yeah, bass players that uh, yeah. you know, kind of Bobby Dahl together and Poison, <laughs> the most talented member of Poison. Which isn't saying much. Yes, but it's uh, saying something. And then we get, uh, I think, for my money, the first fully realized Overkill record, uh, Taking Over, which features uh, a horrible cover, which looks like, uh, speaking of Poison, it looks like the sequel to Look What the Cat Dragged In. It's, it's like not good. neon and got a lot of bad 80s glam colors. Um, it gives you the idea that they're they're sort of a second-rate you know, like trickster or something like that. They're just sort of a joke band. It looks like they're overcompensating for... I, and I don't, I don't know, know what, what you know, <laughs> but what you get on this record, which was put out two years later in 1987, because uh, Feel the Fire was 85, you know, it's more overtly thrash. Uh, you can definitely tell, you know, the the impact that like the sort of Exodus bonded by blood and some of the Metallica stuff has started to like well, the speed take hold and on the, them. The drumming is uh, is definitely picking up. I mean, this is something I was mentioned before we're, as we're kind of putting the show together that. It seems like Rat Skates is kind of just holding on for dear life to to keep up with that tempo of what Thrash is becoming. Well, he has a. We we also noticed that there's a more sinister kind of creator Germanic sort of sound on some of the riffing here, mm-hmm. and that was what made Creator, I guess, always uh, slightly unique. Was Ventor the the drummer was always a little. He's a little off. He's a little off, a little behind. Yeah, he's always know. like behind the beat a little bit, you know. And I'm not saying that that's what's what Rat is doing here, but it's that same sort of like Rat just seems like he's. Yeah, I think it's cool, but it, you can definitely tell that there's no way he could have performed on the next record. Yeah, at, at the level of everybody else as they're progressing. Well, and you get too, you get uh, you know the development on taking over of of Ellsworth as a vocalist. Mm-hmm. You know, he's starting to develop, I guess, his signature snarls. You know, that that really become the defining factor yeah. for him. Because early on, I mean, he's he's very much seems like an acolyte of uh, of Halford mm-hmm. to some degree. At least in his approach, his his range is not anywhere near what Halford's is. But it it's so much more new. You know, new wave of British heavy metal style approach to vocals than whatever other like thrash kind of vocalist was doing because yeah. you know metallica i think a lot of the stuff is almost all 
born out of punk. Mm-hmm. It's nobody has that. Nobody's doing vibrato and you know all this kind of stuff to try to like you know be more operatic with their vocals at that point. I mean, Baloff, Paul Baloff from Exodus was kind of an exception that. Belladonna sometimes could do it with Anthrax, um, but I think Belladonna Jeff was Tate, was know. more. They're more and and Tate both are more traditionally good vocalists. Yeah, he was like Baloff was rough. just he was he was like you know uh, was Brian Johnson from ACDC or something or Bon Scott or, or Bon Scott. Yep. Just that weird kind of like something was off that they uh, they had their own unique kind of sound that if you took it away from the band it wouldn't be the same band, but. It, I think it also turned a lot of people off. <laughs> bon Scott's actually a good, good, you know, he and Udo, I think if you combine those two with like Rob Helford, you get kind of like the unprofessional mixed with the very professional Helford and you get like a Bobby it's Ellsworth the, style. Yeah, it's almost. like the heavy metal equivalent of like a uh, Rod Stewart kind of sound. Because Rob Stewart, I don't think is a Rob Stewart. Rod Stewart is not. Rob's a, his brother. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's his roadie. Oh, which we have to mention. I'm sorry. We have to mention the, the Dan Spitz connection. Uh, let me finish my okay. thought real quick. But, but, like, yeah, <laughs> Speaking like, of brother. Rod Stewart is not a great vocalist, but he has uh, he really commits to what he's sure. got. And he's got that, you know, the, the kind of, you know, I guess raspiness yeah. that eventually kind of works its way into pop culture. But, yes, sure. Dan Spitz, original me- he was an original member, but he was in the orig- one of the early incarnations of Overkill. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and his brother... Dan uh, Dave Spitz. Dave Spitz was on Eternal Idol, one of the shittiest Black Sabbath <laughs> records ever. And in Great White, and in White and Lion. Lion. That's uh, you can't. Wow. We're, I think we're gonna. Mark and I have already talked about doing a Spitz Brothers show. We're, we'll play all things the Spitz Brothers. We can we can go in a lot of places with that show. We can even talk about so, watches. Yeah, so. watchmaker now. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So then, of course, for those of you who don't know what the hell we're talking about. Uh, Dan Spitz will go on and play guitar for Anthrax. Uh, lead guitar. He'll be the, the lead guitar player and have some of the worst uh, metal bangs in history. Wow. Yeah. Good thing he's building watches now. He, uh, yeah, he could are, commit to those things. Man. Yeah. But he's ripped now, too. Is he? He's huh? kind of retardedly ripped. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to Bobby Blitz for a moment and the snarl, one thing we sort of notice, and you hear it on some of the taking over stuff, um, you know, songs like uh, Deny the Cross and um, Power Surge is some of the Dave Mustaine type stuff. And now mm-hmm. who influenced who is, is besides the point. But there's there's clearly some connection there between um, the way that Mustaine would talk his vocals with a snarl rather mm-hmm. than sing sometimes. Which I think a lot of Mustaine's kind of like talking stuff comes from King Diamond. Probably. Yeah, it's that because I don't know anybody else that was really doing that kind of the talky stuff that Diamond was doing at the time. Sure, and he was obviously huge. I mean, they were all very into Merciful Fate. Oh, absolutely. Stuff. So, but you you know, Ellsworth will take that same approach, but he'll kind of put his own unique kind of Jersey spin on it or whatever you Mm -hmm. want to call it. It's I mean, it's a little more rough around the edges. I think. Sure. That's kind of the overkill thing. That's the Bon Scott factor. I was going to mention where it's just it's imperfected, you know, um, which gives it personality. Mm -hmm. But you're right. Say what you want. You might not get in to uh bobby blitz ellsworth's vocals right away but he's certainly consistent and he certainly has his own unique style and that's that style is what would push people like you and i away from overkill when we were younger it didn't open it didn't invite us in as easily as say like the the more traditional vocals of a hatfield or Araya or something like that which mm-hmm. were um I, don't know, I guess it was tough. We grew up in an era where, like, the gruffer the vocals, the better, and the operatic stuff, unless you was very well trained, like if, a Jeff Tate or a Halford or something like that. Yeah. It, it wasn't something. Well, because I mean, as a kid, I didn't like Priest until I heard, uh, you know, um, Painkiller. Painkiller. Yeah. 
And I think it was just, if I would have been born four or five years earlier, it would have all changed. It would have been a completely different story. Like extreme metal wouldn't have been the the one I really, or thrash and extreme metal wouldn't have been the two genres I jumped into. And I, for the life of me, can't figure out why in the hell I became such a Queensryche fan at such a young age. I mean, I was into Queensryche going back, you know, they were one of the first like metal bands that weren't like poison that I can kind of be aware of. I mean, Empire was huge from a Mm -hmm. mainstream angle. But I mean, I was into them with Eyes of the Stranger and stuff like that too. I would hear it on the. I radio. liked them early on too because yeah, there was one band that was like on the radio. Them and like you know, like Guns and Roses, like what eighty eight, eighty nine. Yeah. Which I don't. I wouldn't throw them in the same category, but those were bands that were both played fairly heavily on the radio that I got into and you know discovered the real gems on the on the records that they wouldn't play on the radio. Sure. So I mean, I don't know. So I I guess I've always been like uh, diametrically opposed to those high vocals when I was younger, but you, like you were. Well, and, and actually, around the same later. time as you know, Queensrÿche is when I got into Maiden. Yeah, too. But it was it was just the uh, it was just the Bruce Dickinson Maiden, and then I'd go back. You know, probably another three years after that is when I got into the Paul Diano. You know, the first two records, which for my money are unbeatable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's weird. I don't, I don't know because I liked Maiden too, but I didn't listen to a lot of Maiden until high school. So mm-hmm. it wasn't until like Dickinson had quit Maiden. You know, like the mid '90s, that I was really into Maiden. It was strange. Also, like when Blaze, but I wasn't was listening to Blaze Bailey, so I was going back and buying old stuff. But okay, yeah, whatever. We could trace the genealogy of our uh, aversion to high vocals some other time. But but certainly, certainly that that shows up, and that's a big factor for the overkill sound, and and certainly on taking over. Uh, the record that came out in 87, you, you, you get some of that stuff. Uh, I think you get Gustafsson emerging as a really a great guitar player on this record. He's starting to kind of create his own sort of stuff, modeled after Kirk Hammett in a lot of ways, you know. Yeah, I don't know uh, what it Denied is. Denied Across is a great I think Kirk it's, Hammett solo. Because I think Kirk Hammett, I think, when it comes down to it, is a very... He's kind of meat and potatoes and clinical as far as... I don't think he's a real creative soloist, but he's good. He's great at what he does. And, uh, yeah. you know, bringing in the wah pedal for a lot of his solos and doing a lot of like scales and arpeggio stuff but then you know mixing it up with speed mm-hmm. um gustafson seemed to really he, he's probably the the closest i mean him and hammett sound so similar in a weird way that i don't you don't usually i don't ever hear a whole lot of people like oh that sounds like a kurt hammett solo yeah because <laughs> you know? it is so unassuming in a yeah, lot of ways it's yeah. unassuming but it's good and he hits everything he needs to and it's still emotional and you know but you think like you know I mean, even like a song we won't play but we played it uh played on our uh crucial years show is elimination you know which is yeah. a kind of famous song i mean that's hey, but that whole riff is modeled after a metallica riff the mm-hmm. whole thing you know yeah. and stuff and there's there's solos on here that are pulled like straight off of master of puppets and kill them all and i don't know if it's and stuff like that if it's just something that was in the in the air at the time or uh you know it could have been you know when watch. we get to end of the line there's there's a lot of like you know black album metallica stuff mixed with master of puppet arpeggios and things like that so. and really they were probably recorded around the same time yeah that's true it's true, but uh, you know, and taking over, I think the model for this record too was was Kill 'Em All, was Fistful of Metal, was Killing Is My Business, Business Good. Those sort of really traditional early thrash records. It's not till Under the Influence that all of a sudden Overkill is going to evolve and really bring in a lot of melodic elements and a lot of more dynamic progressive elements that you and a lot hear. more speed. Yeah, sure. You know, Although there's ways. some speed on like uh, Deny the Cross and, and even Power Surge, which you're going to hear. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are pretty fast records, uh, fast songs, but when you add the new drumming component 
you make yes. up for what Rat couldn't do, all of a sudden you can bottom end that speed a little bit more and make it more aggressive and stuff. So, but let's uh, let's get into some music. We got a pair of tunes from Taking Over. Uh, we got Deny the Cross and Power Surge. Which one thing I mentioned about Power Surge is you hear uh, a lot of chant vocal stuff, which was made famous by the, a lot of the New York bands, especially Anthrax and I think Overkill did it really well. Well, sort of like probably, sing along kind of chant stuff. Yeah, it goes back to call and response of blues, sure, kind yeah. of stuff. But but the uh, but it was also the New York hardcore. New York hardcore scene. is probably most identifiable. Yeah, with that. and Anthrax is probably best known for really embracing that. Almost every single song they did in the first couple of records, sure, <laughs> it had that groove model behind yeah. it. And then we're going to transition to a pair of songs from uh, Under the Influence, uh, Drunken Drunken Wisdom, and End of the Line. And we'll talk more about those songs when we come back.
That was End of the Line and Drunken Wisdom from the Under the Influence record from 1988. And then we started things off with a pair from Taking Over, Deny the Cross, and Power Surge. And um, one thing you'll notice on Under the Influence, even though it's only a year later, there's there's quite a bit of progressive evolution, I would say, in the yeah. songwriting purposes. Um, you know, you're hearing, obviously, on uh, the... You know, on Drunken Wisdom, which was the six-minute tune there, the doomy kind of Black Sabbath-oriented sort of really bottom-heavy, slowed-down kind of riffing, mm-hmm. which Metallica hinted at and flirted with on you know thing that could not be and, and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. they, they definitely had that part to them, but but here you know it's it's almost forward-looking to the early '90s when when like you know Metallica Black record, which was very stripped down, very bottom-heavy, simplistic, but slow, mm-hmm. you know, in yeah. a sense. And then, yeah. and then, um, you know, a, a band that we kind of talked a lot about off off mic, uh, which is Pantera, because there's so much of that kind of Pantera aesthetic that's really happening. Um, and I don't know if Overkill influenced Pantera or not, but I, I would have to assume that, you know, uh, Diamond, Daryl Abbott, whatever you want to call it, Dimebag. Dimebag, whatever. Yeah, that that he was certainly a fan of, of Overkill on some level. You know? I, I would think so. I mean, just that there are, I mean, even like probably bands like Meshuggah probably pulled something out of mm-hmm. these guys. But the, I mean, because I think the, the, the ultimate kind of thrash trope to any any music is the palm mute. You know, is yep. what is what you know. I kind of always have considered thrash and what you know Metallica and Anthrax and Megadeth did very well, but also what uh, Overkill kind of did in a different way because they used that, but they also pulled in. You know, we'll, like we'll hear on um, on End of the Line, they pull in Iron Maiden riffs, yeah, like sure. Iron Maiden breakdowns, which a lot of the other bands were really not. I don't think they were pulling in as much from you know from from of old. They were more pulling in you know Merciful Fate and Venom and Motorhead kind of vibes, and not the the, the kind of like classical traditional heavy metal kind yeah, of. Yeah, the only band in America uh, that he was even remotely associated with that scene was Queensrÿche that was doing Iron Maiden kind of stuff. But Queensrÿche was never a thrash band. They just were mm-hmm. an '80s metal band that weren't glam, and so like. Yeah. They were taken more seriously, like the thrash stuff was, but they never really walked in thrash camp, you know, because that's not where they were about. No, and like their their riffing kind of structures was never the you know the, the maiden kind of triplicate format or anything mm-hmm. like that. But mm-hmm. I don't know if because the funny thing is that Queensrÿche was taken more seriously because they had political and serious you know lyrics, but yet you don't hear any kind of like punk influence as no. far because that I mean that's the that's sure. what punk lyrics were. Yeah, but that kind of stuff's not doesn't seem to spill over into Overkill. Yeah, <laughs> it's weird. Well, yeah, because Overkill's lyrics were were not. Um, that was one of the critiques against them was that their lyrics were always sometimes a little lowbrow and and that they a were lot young of, kids. Well, but a lot of the choruses and a lot of the song titles were almost created kind of like what Exodus would do. They were created to write great thrash songs around and to like mm-hmm. chant and sing. Yeah, you know, I yeah. mean, almost like Toxic Waltz is like a perfect example of that. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, Overkill was kind of cut into that mold a little bit until we get to say like Horoscope, where I feel like uh, the record will end with Horoscope. It's much more mature on some level. Yeah, you know? for sure. Uh, but the maturity comes out in their songwriting, at least, and so you mm-hmm. have to take them seriously now as musicians, even if you just thought they were, you know, kind of cookie cutter on on Feel the Fire and taking over. You can't hear drunken wisdom and hear that breakdown that happens, that really sick breakdown that goes into the crazy ass solo that uh, Gustafson uh, does on that song, 
um, or when you get to the song we just heard, End of the Line, which you mentioned a second ago, mm-hmm. you get to that middle solo, and you go from you know a Megadeth-style Peace Cells kind of solo into a Black Album Metallica solo into the metallic arpeggios a master of puppets kind of mixing around in there all with this very like i would call it an emotional undertone of like rage to order operation mind crime queensryche mm-hmm. yeah i mean that, that I, I probably just blew people's minds with a mouthful <laughs> of references there but you go back you know rewind a little bit the podcast and listen to that that solo again and end of the line it's it's justified it's a great solo but it's weird, you know. They were, they were sort of modeling all these different types of sounds and, and mixing them together, and uh, you know, maybe some people thought it was a little too hodgepodgey or jigsawed together, but uh, I like it. I think it works, you know. Yeah, I wonder if that was their their big problem is that they the some I think some of their influences were worn too <clears throat> too directly on their sleeve. Yeah, because like you listen to Metallica and early Metallica, and you don't necessarily pull out okay they liked you know. You know, the only thing you really or, you, you really heard was like Diamond Head was really obvious almost from Am I Evil on and that kind of model. Yeah, know? at least on Kill 'Em All you could hear a lot of that stuff. Yeah, you know? I mean you could hear a lot as far as Motorhead as far as speed and stuff went, but I think they were more I think they were more cohesive as far as the, this whole sound of the records. Yeah, because really you could pull a lot of these Overkill songs off of you like you pull one song off a record you don't necessarily it doesn't always go to okay that's your decay that's under the influence yeah they could kind of go anywhere they don't have that kind of you know solidity that like a metallica record you hear a song you know what record it's on. sure i mean hello from the gutter which is on uh under the influence could have been on years of decay i mean you could have swapped that with elimination you know that could have been the same record for all you because they're very similar and they're kind of like a commercial approach i guess you could say Mm -hmm. you know but uh yeah, but then, like then, like you said, they th- they throw like a end of the line in there. It's like a weird wrench, you know. Like it almost has like this. It comes out into like all uh, uh, those all those crazy solos, you know, that we talked about and the sort of Queensrÿche influence into like an Iron Maiden, Diano era type Phantom of the Opera, Genghis Khan, yeah, Wrath Child. I mean, just get all wrapped all up in the weird... kind of like you know operatic nature of old priest ballads. Yeah, it's it's, it's bizarre. Sure, it's a it's a crazy record. And Under the Influence kind of gets tagged as like a, um, I don't know. It doesn't get the the attention. It kind of gets slagged as like the overkill record in this era. That if you had to slag a record, it's this one. But. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I think everything up until uh, horoscope. I think is they're all pretty great. great. <laughs> I mean, I think I think the the only thing that that's weird about um, you know under the influence is that they're throwing all these new influences in, and so maybe that that piss it was like south of heaven you know maybe that title is very more apt than we actually think yeah that's true (laughs) could be they're just they're wearing their influences literally you know but the the next record they put out a year later in 89 uh is the first one that terry date who will go on and get very famous uh ironically working with pantera and uh deftones and and uh and uh Let's let's not let's not go there, but uh, but Terry, you know, so Terry Date, maybe he took some of this overkill influence to uh, to to the Abbott family. Oh, because yeah, because Cowboys from Hell was ninety, which mm-hmm. Terry Date did as well. Yeah, and then ninety one's Horoscope. Yeah, and Vulgar Display. And then comes 92. back to yeah, comes back. To Damn, Vulgar, so. I think we just solved a mystery that All nobody right. nobody even knew <laughs> hey, it was a mystery. VH One, why don't you have us on your show? Yeah, come on, come, come on, on really. we need some money. We could we could really figure stuff out for you. But um, it's a great record, you know. It's got Elimination, which we played on our um, Crucial Years episode for mm-hmm. for '89. Um, you know big commercial song for him, video, things like that. 
But this uh, is when they kind of, I think, started to kind of push forward a little bit and become. I, I think. I mean, I think behind. I think they were ahead of Exodus. I think they're ahead of Testament as far as like commercial viability and uh, in attendance to shows and stuff as well. I think they were right up there. So yeah. if you're going to have like the big, you know, eight, I think you throw in Overkill, Exodus, and Testament, and yeah. you got it. Yeah, I think well, you're right. that would be the big seven. That'd be the big seven. Uh, there, there's another one in there. We're forgetting. It's going to be Is there? obvious. Yeah. Um, I will come back. It's okay. Yeah, think about that one. <laughs> that, that's another episode. But but uh, the one thing that's interesting about Years of Decay is the not just that Terry Date produces it, but he does things differently. Um, it's it's a little lo-fi for my taste. Um, it's the drum production is not as good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, we should mention that Under the Influence features uh, the new drummer, uh, Under the Influence in Years of Decay. Oh, Sid Falk, yeah, I think. he was from Paul Diano's band. Yeah, uh, what was that name of that band? Like Power something. <sighs> or, I don't know. Or it's either like Paul Diano's Inquisition or yeah, something. something. Yeah, something like something that. Crazy, ridiculous. And you know, you get a little bit of you know, it punches up the drums a little bit more and under the influence. But then Terry Date comes in. I feel like he doesn't quite know what to do with the sound yet it's not as vibrant as he doesn't know how to horse, he doesn't so. know how to capture the drums that fast it's like you know scott travers from when he came into priest yeah and just kind of like blew the doors off of his you know how like how tight you know he was and how fast he could be consistently yeah so and so you're gonna get a little bit of that but i think this is maybe one of terry date's first records he ever does so he's he's kind of learning on the job a little bit and uh oh, he did mother love bone too and love mother love bone was i think 89 yeah. So he did some interesting. Oh, he did louder than love as well. Yeah. Well, I knew he did Soundgarden. Yeah. I knew he did Soundgarden. Um, he'll. Do, I think he do a bad motor finger too. So uh, he won't do super I, unknown. I, I know that because yeah. the guy that did docking under lock and key will do Soundgarden <laughs> super unknown. <laughs> Boom! Didn't think I could bring it back to docking. Right. Never underestimate. Everything comes docking. back to then docking. Uh, but the pair of tunes we're gonna play from this record: uh, "Birth Attention" and the title track "Years of Decay." Um, Birth Attention, I think what's interesting about this song is it sounds like a typical kind of overkill type tune, but pay very close attention in the chorus to the drumming stuff that happens because that's going to be a defining thing on Horoscope and beyond mm-hmm. for um, the weird things that he's doing underneath to sort of add uh, a little bit more power to some of the choruses, and it's you, you hear it in Birth Attention. But Years of Decay, I think this is a great uh, ballad for overkill and it shows some of those kind of dynamics and you mentioned it models the sort of sad wings of destiny sin after sin stained class kind of priest epic battles if uh, yeah battles if, ballads, ballads. <laughs> if, if kurt hammett was playing with them yeah yeah there you go so uh some interesting things happening here like you said you know you'll hear some of the the production value notice how it will transition out of these two songs into the pair of songs that we're going to open up horoscope with coma which is coma and infectious and then we'll talk about uh, horoscope and, and be out of your hair here in a moment
infectious coma, years of decay, and birth of tension. So, um, Horoscope 91, this is my first, uh, coma is the first overkill song I ever heard. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, I, I kind of didn't mind them, but then I heard the stuff after Horoscope in the mid nineties and it didn't really do much for me. Yeah. Um, but Hello the big, from the gutter was my big, was that your intro? Your, your intro? I was like, this is stupid. Cause it's just like a skull with wings flying around. Yeah, exactly. Which is their little logo, which yeah. uh, it's called Charlie. I think is oh, the okay. name of it. Yeah. yeah, good to know. <laughs> but um, something unique happens on Horoscope because this is when uh, the original, well, not the original, but the one of the, the longtime guitar, longtime guitar player and songwriter, I guess, uh, Gustafson, uh, leaves, and they bring in a pair of guitar players. Gant, Rob Canavino. Apparently, they had kind of an open, open like casting call mm-hmm. uh, for these guys. But they, I think they do a nice job. I think uh, yeah, you can't not hear what you know. The, a the production's way tighter than it's ever been. Yeah. I mean, this is the mature, the most mature, most focused Overkill record we've heard up to this point. I feel like they're kind of growing up. They're not as, uh, I don't know, as juvenile maybe, and as well. And I think the party esque. They're, they're still keeping the kind of the vibe because Gustafson, even though they had one guitar player, he was doing rhythm and lead tracks mm-hmm. on the recordings. But uh, I don't think they're trying to stray too far from what he kind of established. They don't. Yeah, over, it's not like mas- masturbatory or anything. No, like and they that. don't take over like the the kind of the, like the the stuff that Didi was doing on bass. That you know his kind of like part of the band that he kind of chiseled himself into. They don't take that away at all. It just sounds really good. It's just recorded really well. Well, if you hear like you know the intro of Coma going into that like blazing drum production, you can tell like Terry Date has figured out what the hell he's doing yeah. in two years. You know yeah. to make it a full sounding thrash metal instead record. of yeah taking the, the drum kit and making it sound like this one mid tone. He's actually so like breaking it up like okay we've got you know the kick the everything has its own kind of like more volumetric mm-hmm. vibe to it yeah and i mean i think you know if, if this had been the end of 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 overkill i think they would have had a very complete uh pretty brilliant sort of career uh mm-hmm. but you gotta give them credit because they're still kicking and they've got some uh you know even ironbound which is their newest record from last a year nuclear blast man it's it's Not pretty bad. solid. Yeah, I mean, even yeah. though uh, you know Bobby Blitz had a stroke and had nose cancer, which wow. you don't hear about very often, That's uh, wild. he's still kicking it. Yeah, and he's at his snarling best on tunes like Coma and Infectious. Uh, Infectious has a great kind of sing along kind of chorus aspect to it, which you heard there. So, but uh, you know, go out get these records uh, if you can find Taking Over and you can find it for cheap. Send us a copy. Yeah, we'd love to have it, man. Uh, I'm, I'm bidding on it currently on eBay, so maybe I'll have good news for you on the uh, the next episode uh, of whether or not I was able to sort of secure that. But I think they're a band that's over uh, very underrated, uh, mm-hmm. even for you know Mark and I. Very, it's the one thing I, I think that we both agree on with Eddie Trunk from that metal show and his own you know serious satellite or whatever the so, whole radio show. Eddie Trunk, if you're listening to our podcast in secret. <laughs> Which is ruining your hard rock cred and increasing your yeah. heavy metal cred. Sorry, it's not UFO, but uh, you can write us a letter in secret, and we'll maybe we'll uh, you know we'd love to have you on the show so we can grill you and beat you up a little bit and ask you some actually thoughtful, serious, journalistic questions. There you go. Uh, we can. I think you got it in you, Eddie. I think we'll stump the trunk. I think yeah, we got I it think in so us. Pretty I, think, I think we'll do it. But uh, we're going to close things with a final <laughs> cut from uh, from Horoscope tonight and uh, tonight today, whenever the hell you listen. This afternoon, See, whatever. You've convinced me that we're on a live radio show like Eddie Trunk's yes. uh, uh, bullshit stuff he does in New York and Jersey. Oh, don't talk shit about him. We want to get him on the show. That's true. He's not listening to this. He'll no, never know. He won't. 
Um, but we've got Live Young, Die Free, which has a cool and justice for uh, all kind of vibe to it. And uh, just an overall great solo. Uh, just Sounds a like a free song yeah. title. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Live Young, Die Free. <laughs> uh, less gay connotations to yes, it, but, yes. but for sure uh, kind of priestian. Uh, priestian. But uh, let us know what you thought. Uh, if you're new to Overkill, like we were, or maybe you're an old time fan, you know, did we do him justice? You know, um, because again, this is a band we're, we're sort of relatively new to in terms of taking him seriously. Shoot us an email at requiempodcast at gmail.com. Check us out on the uh, website, requiempodcast.com. You can become an executive producer, get merch, things like that. Uh, Facebook, uh, Mark and Jason, or go to iTunes and leave us a, a review, star rating, things like that. That'd be we great. It. So. For Overkill, I am Jason. And I am Mark. And this and is. And you gotta be shitting me. Yeah. You gotta be shitting me. Live young, die free, people. I've. Truer words never spoken.